Before we get started on today's episode, I have a quick program note. As regular listeners know, last week we launched a new series on this podcast about campus life during the pandemic semester. For that series, we are following students and professors at six universities, and we'll have new installments of their story every other week through the end of the academic year. This is one of those in-between weeks, though. We're busy gathering audio diaries from the students and professors you met last week, and I'm going to say they are full of surprising details about living and studying through this COVID fall. So make sure to check in next Tuesday for episode two of the Pandemic Campus Diaries series. Meanwhile, this week, you're in for a treat as well. We have an interview with one of the most well-known education researchers ever, I'd say. Howard Gardner of Harvard University's Grad School of Education. Okay, here we go with that episode. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter at EdSurge. How smart are you? The education world can get obsessed sometimes with trying to come up with ways to measure smarts. But our guest today is someone who has a history of shaking up the narrative when it comes to talking about intelligence. It's Howard Gardner, best known for his theory of multiple intelligences. He released this idea decades ago, and it was controversial. His insight was that the idea that we could put a single number like IQ on the human brain just doesn't make sense, considering how the mind works. Because the brain has lots of different areas doing different things, and people develop them differently over the years. Through years of research, Gardner settled on eight different types of intelligence. Interpersonal, intrapersonal, kinesthetic, linguistic verbal, mathematical, musical, naturalistic, and visual spatial intelligence. You don't need to know really what each one is, but you get a sense of the variety of types that he's talking about. Gardner has made a long and influential career exploring the mind and how to think about it. He's a professor of cognition and education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's won a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he's published more than 30 books. Educators and school leaders have brought his ideas to life in various ways over the years, including building experimental K-12 schools that have focused on the idea of developing these different intelligences in students. But probably more importantly, he's helped reshape the conversation about how to help kids learn and to nurture different aspects of the brain, which today, I think has blossomed into pushes for more social-emotional learning and thinking beyond traditional academics in designing schools and curriculums. This month, Gardner came out with a new book. It's a different kind of book, where he looks inward. It's a memoir called A Synthesizing Mind. In it, he reflects on the interdisciplinary work that he did that led to his theory of multiple intelligences. And he has suggestions for how to encourage that kind of broad thinking so others can make new insights across whatever fields they're working on. He argues that we need this kind of synthesizing thinking these days in this challenging moment of polarization and pandemic. Oh, and stay tuned until the end when Gardner gives a preview of his next big project, which is about rethinking college. I started by asking Gardner to quickly state his most famous theory and explain what is multiple intelligence. Sure. Um, one of the things about uh, a a book that catches on is that uh, for better or worse, you can summarize it very succinctly. Um, <laughs> the, the existence of the single word intelligence implies it's one thing. And I basically pluralize that um, by talking about different kinds of intelligence. And the way to think about it is 
if there was only a single thing called intelligence, that would mean you have one computer in your head and that if the computer worked well, you'd be good at everything. If the computer was average, you'd be average at everything. If the computer didn't work well, you'd be out of luck. Um, MI theory, as people call it, says that we have eight, nine, 10 different computers. And the fact that you're good with language doesn't mean you're gonna be good with understanding other people. The fact that you're good spatially doesn't mean you're gonna be good musically and so on. When um, educators use the word intelligence, they're typically talking about people who are good in language and logic. And those are very helpful if you're going to be in school, but um, you know, we all eventually leave school and then other intelligences are important. Also, um, there are many people who are highly numerical or logical who aren't very good in language. There are many people who are very skilled in language, um, but are not particularly um, mathematical or logical. And I always say the law professor is probably the ideal blend of language and logic and law professors presumably would do well in IQ tests, but doesn't mean you would be uh, a salesman would do well, doesn't mean that a musician would do well, doesn't mean that a navigator would do well. Those are different kinds of intelligence. So that's the intuition. Um, speaking frankly, psychologists have never liked the theory very much, but educators and parents who have more than a few kids right away realize that I captured something that we know intuitively, but in a sense, the, the discipline of psychology had blinded us to it because we like to have instruments which you can give quick and dirty and get a number. And that's the appeal of the IQ test or the SAT, which is in some sense a, 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 an IQ test. Though they keep changing what they call it, uh, achievement, aptitude. Now they're probably not gonna use it after COVID. Um, but the, you know, the, the search for a silver bullet doesn't end. Right. So it was coming up against a, a world in which the idea was like, how do we build a better test of the intelligence of the human brain? True. Yeah. No, um, the, uh, the, the psychometric community, people who measure intelligence, knew from the start that uh, Gardner's theory was something that was going to cause them trouble, and it has. And I should mention, because most viewers, most listeners will be thinking about emotional intelligence. This was a term was actually coined by Salve and Mayer. Um, Salve is now the president of Yale, yep. but it was popularized by Dan Goldman, a very fine writer and journalist. And um, I, I'm often asked, you know, do I believe in EQ? And we can talk about that. But that was also um, probably, especially in the business world, um, one of the things which slew um, the notion of a single intelligence, because you can be terrific in an IQ test and you can be an absolute disaster at the workplace. I wanted to clarify that your multiple intelligences theory, it's not learning styles. What's the difference if you had to put it for those who might have that feeling that you reference in the book about, well, you know, they're kind of conflated by some people. Right. Um, so multiple intelligence is a psychological theory. And in fact, it's a theory of different computers in your skull which actually means different computers in your brain. And one of the chief lines of evidence for multiple intelligence was the fact that different parts of the brain modulate music, space, um, language, and so on. Um, the word learning styles probably existed a long time, but it became well-known sort of in the same period as multiple intelligences. Um, but learning styles is an odd hoc 
um, grab bag of um, abilities and skills for which I, there is not the kind of evidence that I used for depositing the intelligence. And what drives me nuts, Jeff, is people talk about visual and auditory styles, and I think that's absolute nonsense. Um, they often use visual styles for somebody who's not a good reader, but of course reading is visual. And auditory is language, but it's also music. And what are they talking about when they're talking about auditory? So it's an unpacked term. Um, and I don't care if people use it over the dinner table, but I loathe when people say multiple intelligence is a learning style theory, because it's not. It's a theory of different computational devices. And it doesn't have any particular educational implications unless you want to think about how does the brain uh, uh, how does it restrict or encourage what goes on in classrooms? And this I've thought about for 40 years, and I can give a very succinct answer. Multiple intelligences enables you to individuate and to pluralize. Individuate means if you know a lot about how you learn, or for that matter, you know a lot about how your kids learn, what interests them, how, you know, how they think, um, you can individuate, you can deliver things to them in ways that it's most likely to work for them. Per pluralize, um, you can do if you have one person or you have a million. Pluralize means anything that's important, you should be able to present in more than one way. And of course, what I have in mind is you present it addressing different kinds of intelligences. So in this book, The Disciplined Mind, I talk about three topics, um, Darwinian evolution, the music of Mozart and the Holocaust of the Second World War. And I show how you can approach it linguistically, logically, aesthetically, and so on. So um, there are educational implications to MI theory if you want to have them, but just like IQ has no particular educational policy in it, neither does multiple intelligences. Learning style is a promissory note. If we find your style, we can know how to teach you. And there's just no good evidence for that. And what Howard Gardner would say is, is because the theories are, because the, um, the styles are not con well conceptualized and don't have empirical support. So you're out with a new book that's different than the other 30 or so books that you've published. Um, it's called A Synthesizing Mind. And it's a memoir, but as you say in the book, it's an unusual type of memoir. Um, as you put, I think it quotes like, it's not your love lay for your political ideas, but it's a story of this big idea you came up with and, and kind of how it flew through, fled, went through the culture in sometimes messy ways. Um, I think you, you say at some point it's an intellectual memoir. Uh, what, what was it that led you to write this? Um, I began to write about multiple intelligences. And as I began to write about it, I said, you know, I've told this story already. I don't need to tell it again. But um, what came in sharper and sharper focus is that it's not really a good account of how my own mind works. And ironically, in um, coming up with the theory, and it took me five years of research with a whole team to come up with it. It wasn't something I woke up one night and said, oh, there's multiple intelligences, and there's a 400-page book which documents it, um, is, is the kind of mind I have as a synthesizing mind. Uh, and what I did, um, not only for multiple intelligences, but in many other lines of work we could talk about, was to assemble a huge amount of data, sometimes myself as I'm an empirical researcher, sometimes from reading, sometimes from talking to people, and then organize it and reorganize it and going over it 
dozens and dozens of times trying out taxonomies and maps and um, jokes and poems and uh, um, any other kind of medium and giving it to other people and say, does this make sense? Um, seeing how they react to it, revising it again. And uh, finally, getting it into the shape that I think it needed to be in so it could be communicable to other people. And I did that about intelligence, but we could talk about how I've done it about other topics like creativity and leadership and, and most recently about, about good work. And even though, if you'd asked me, you know, what do I do? I probably would have said, well, I'm a synthesizer, but I'd never really thought about what that entailed. And so the book, A Synthesizing Mind, uses myself as a case study, but even if you don't care at all about me, it does talk a lot about what it takes to, to synthesize. And something that I think you would, you would personally relate to, uh, Jeff, is that I describe what I do as in between journalism and empirical science. Um, a journalist has a deadline and he or she or they meet that deadline and they can remember what they did, but they move on to something else and uh, you know, the pieces are short and they occasionally have a long half-life. Um, you know, experimental scientists carry out research. They have control groups, they do statistics, and if they've done the, the study well, the, the finding will, will, will last forever. I'm kind of suspicious about the term social science. I think it, uh, it promises more than it delivers. But what I do um, is not something that uh, journalists do unless they're doing very long-form journalists. Uh, in fact, if you think about the, the writers for the New York Times, like Thomas Friedman or David Brooks, they take off a leave when they're going to write a book and who knows when the book will come out. But it's also not what the standard experimental scientist does. Uh, that person may write an article, might occasionally write a monograph, but they don't spend years synthesizing. The book is not a how-to book, but I am struck by how little anybody ever, ever tried to teach me how to synthesize. Uh, you know, I probably had some lessons on how to write uh, a research paper, but I think we can do a lot more to help people synthesize. And so in the last chapters of the book, I talk about some of the things which work for me, which I've done with students, um, and which I think could be done in companies and uh, in different professions to help people define a problem, collate massive amounts of information, group it, regroup it, test it out, take it back to the drawing board, throw some stuff out, reformulate the question, finally have a draft that's wide, that you can post widely and then get it in good enough form. Um, and uh, if it turns out that a lot of the things we do in school now can be done instantly, I mean, I suppose it's still useful to learn your times tables, but it's hardly very necessary. Um, we need to do things in school which can't be done easily by um, you know, the device that you and I are holding. Uh, but uh, um, you know, I think, I think we could do a much better job of teaching synthesizing. And I say in the book that I know the psychology and education literature pretty well. There's astonishingly little about how the synthesizing mind works. So I'm hoping the book is a contribution to that particular challenge. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I wondered if if it's if it's hard to operate in a way with without a discipline because there's a little bit about the synthesizing mind, which is kind of also about you know you're mentioning that you didn't you've had some struggle 
and and maybe maybe still do in some way to sort of fit fit neatly into which is you know probably has its ups and downs but is it is it sort of in times frustrating to not have that home um like in the psychology department neatly or in it, even maybe in some of the education spaces well again again you're raising two issues i'm very happy in my home and probably <laughs> many psychologists are happy that i'm in an education school so <laughs> gotcha we're both happy um but I wrote a book uh, a long time ago. It's, I think, one of the most important things I've written called, called The Discipline Mind. And I'm a great believer in the disciplines. The disciplines are incredible human inventions. I like to use classical music because I love classical music. Classical music was invented. It's not part of you know, God's plan. It was part of Bach and Mozart and Haydn's plan, and it could disappear. Um, and so, too, physics, history, philosophy, linguistics, these are human inventions and you have to be nuts to ignore um human inventions that's the point of the 10-year rule you know you need to take a, a decade to become a master in something um but you can't become a master in too many disciplines uh so i guess if i look at myself i'm kind of a, a a soft social scientist with a historian streak in me so i can do something in the area of psychology sociology anthropology because I studied and I write a great deal about this in the book, a field called social relations, abbreviated as SOCREL, which was a very interesting field in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, a combination of psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So I can kind of fake those, um, those, those three disciplines. And if I'd liked the history department better in college, I probably would have become a historian. And in a sense, in my memoir, I'm a historian of myself, so to speak. Um, so I'm not at all against disciplines, um, but if it takes 10 years to master discipline and then you have to keep at the forefront of that discipline, it makes it very difficult to work in more fields unless you're a Leonardo. And I don't know that we have any Leonardo da Vinci's now because the fields change too quickly. I mean, that's one way the internet is wonderful. You know, things don't, they're not, they don't remain secrets. When somebody finds something, everybody else can build on it. Um, and so after having written The Disciplined Mind, I spent a lot of time studying interdisciplinarity, which I think is very important. Um, I'm on the advisory board of the Media Lab at MIT, which styles itself as an interdisciplinary or even an anti-disciplinary uh, field. And uh, I encourage people to, you know, to study more than one discipline, but I would never encourage people not to have a discipline. Um, Got it. And, uh, you know, we do, we do have individuals who are autodidact, autodidacts, who teach themselves, who train themselves. And sometimes they're remarkable, but uh, as anybody who gets to be reasonably well-known knows, our emails, our, our mailboxes are filled with crackpots who don't realize that this thing was solved 100 years ago if you just went back and you read uh, this law or you were acquainted with this body of, 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 uh, in, in a museum or something. And so right. there's a lot of risks of being an autodidactic. A didactic. On the other hand, uh, if I were to rewrite the discipline mind again, and I did just write an introduction to the, the new edition of the book, um, young people now who work on, you know, who, who surf the web, and you know, I've got kids and grandkids, they're going to run into stuff from different disciplines. It's not going to be marked that way. And in some ways, that gives them a richer playing field, but it also, may give them cul-de-sacs 
which would have been less likely if they had studied, you know, philosophy, you know, in a philosophy department and they'd study mathematics in the math department. So that's a very interesting challenge. And I know, because I did a slight bit of homework, you're very interested in online learning and uh, also learning during COVID. And when there's less and less guidance, especially personal guidance in a classroom or in a, in a university campus or a college campus, there can be a lot of chaotic connections made, which won't be good for anybody. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is my, my, my next question. I wanted to make sure I get in before we run out of time, which is we're in an unprecedented moment for education in America and well, for everything in America with this disruption in the global pandemic. Um, and I, I wonder what advice you can offer based on your work, whether it's multiple intelligence or any of the many other books that you've uh, and, and ideas that you've come up with along the way. So grounded in your research, like what, what can you offer to educators at this moment? Is there, is there a thing or two that you could, could highlight? I think what COVID has done for every sector, for every profession, for every discipline, um, and for every sector of education is to say what is really important, what is really crucial, what is it that we can do that nobody else can do and that we should try to do as well as possible. But it, it really, it, really it, 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 it concentrates the mind. Um, and uh, it's also, I, I, one, one of my colleagues just wrote a blog about this. Um, you know, most of us are parents and a few of us are teachers uh, K-12, a few of us meaning a few million, whereas 100 million parents. Um, now, I'm a grandparent, as is my wife, Ellen. We suddenly have become parent or grandparent teachers. What can we do as adults who are not full-time classroom teachers um, when the teacher isn't physically available, when we're not experts on algebra or Latin or whatever, whatever the subject matter is, or we haven't learned how to code. Um, and since we can't do everything, clearly we have to say, what is the one thing I can do as a parent or grandparent, as a teacher, which can I, took, I can do well and is most likely to be helpful to, uh, to our offspring? Um, so I guess what I'm saying is the first time I thought about it, we aren't only examining what we do as workers, we're also examining what we do as family members. Uh, and you know, even parents who were so happy to send their kids off to school for 12 years, that's not gonna be possible for a while. No. So it, 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 it focuses the mind, it concentrates the mind. Uh, and uh, I'm very sad there's a COVID and I'm relieved that so far my family is healthy. But I think a lot of stuff that the society has been doing is not good. We don't have to talk about that today. And if this, if this is a moment of truth uh, in any sector or for any role, then it's not completely a waste. Yeah. No, that I, I, I hear you. I guess one other thing I wanted to ask if you have a minute, which is that, um, you know, your own story, you, you mentioned that it's not meant to be just a, one of those memoirs where you talk about, you know, just yourself and your details, but but your um, readers learn that you're a first generation college student yourself um, from Scranton, I believe, right? That's right. Uh, um, Joe Biden and I were born and grew up in Scranton. We're both 77 years of old of age. Uh, um, and his wife's a teacher, so maybe someday uh, they'll be in the White House, and I'll get to get to meet them. Yeah, my parents um, would have been educated um, if Hitler hadn't. Uh, 
come to power, but they were young German Jews and they were lucky to get out arriving in the United States the night of the broken glass, Kristallnacht, where they, if they'd been in Germany, they might've been maimed or killed. Um, and I grew up in Scranton as the bright Jewish kid who proverbially hated the sight of blood. So I was gonna become a lawyer, not a doctor. <laughs> Though I actually did pre-med as well as pre-law. I think to tell my parents I could have been a doctor or a lawyer, but I really wanted to end up being a, being a teacher and a scholar. And they were very supportive, very, good parents, uh, lived, both lived long lives, uh, were able to compensate to some extent for, for what they'd lost. And they gave me free reign, which uh, is very lucky. Um, when you're an immigrant child, um, you educate your parents about the country because of course they don't, they don't know what school is like, they don't know what football and baseball are, they don't know uh, about what's on television. We didn't get a TV till I was, eight or nine years of age. Um, and they never told me what I should do. And that was, a, uh, that was very helpful. Um, uh, I won the MacArthur Prize um, when I didn't have a job. I was just living off of grants. And so somebody quipped, now when they, they ask your parents what Howard does, they can say, oh, my son's a genius. Um, now, I don't think, the I think the MacArthur Fellowship is wonderful. I don't think they have any way of discovering genius, but um, I didn't have a, a, a job until I was in my 40s. I lived off of grants, which was absolutely right thing for me to do, though it was very perilous. Um, but I was able to get a lot of research done and a lot of writing done, and I don't regret that. And unlike most people who become teachers, I didn't have to be one lesson ahead of the students, because by the time I was in my 40s, I actually knew something. <laughs> uh. <laughs> right. There was one other thing we talked about briefly, which is this other book project that he's working on. Sure. Um, the book is 18 months away from publication. Wendy Fishman and I have written a book, which I think it's probably the most ambitious thing we've ever undertaken. It's about higher education. Um, the current title is The Once in Future College, The Once in Future College. And uh, one of our conclusions in the book is that most of our colleges and universities for the best of motivation, try to do way too much. The term we've created is project Titus. Um, you could also call it missions impossible. You know, you go to any website, you go on any tour because these colleges are gonna make you you know, great intellects, uh, great artists, uh, highly moral people, tremendously good citizen. They're gonna develop your entrepreneurial skills, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, that's baloney. If, uh, if colleges can do one thing very, very well, that would be an achievement. And because you know the literature as well as anybody, we have difficulty demonstrating that colleges can do anything very well. So I guess, I don't know if you are, I know you've mentioned it's 18 months away, you said, this, this sweeping book you've, you've, you've been working on about higher education. Um, is there any other preview you're comfortable talking about with that one? Or do you want to put that off until it's closer to, to coming out? Anybody can go to howardgardner.com and look at the um, blog called Lifelong Learning. And there are 50 blogs which cover many topics in the book. And if anybody wants to write to me uh, at howard underscore gardner at harvard.edu, I will send you a link to a special place where we have a 
summary of what's in the book so far. Uh, but I'm going to tantalize you by not, uh, by not, by not uh, stilling the fire. Um, well played. Well, it's great to talk to you again. Um, wish I could be there in your office uh, talking in person. I wish um, I could be there. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Take yeah. care. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. To keep up with new episodes, please subscribe to the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please take a minute to give us a shout out on social media or share it with a friend. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. And remember, next week, we'll be back with the second installment of our Pandemic Campus Diary series. You'll hear more candid reports and reflections from students and professors at six colleges around the country. They talk about what college life is like during this pandemic and how they're trying to keep education going despite today's super stressful and let's face it, often strange higher ed environment. See you next Tuesday. Until then, thanks for listening.